Well, that was the opening music to East of Eden. And it was released in 1955 by Warner Brothers. And the director was Aaliyah Kazan. The screenplay was written by Paul Osborne, and it's based on a John Steinbeck novel. And it stars James Dean, Julie Harris, Raymond Massey, Burl Ives, which it was so cool. I, I Every time I think of Burl Ives, I think of those animated Christmas specials. <laughs> yes, <laughs> he did a lot of those. He did, yeah. So every time he was walking around, I was thinking of him as the snowman. Uh, <laughs> Joe Van Fleet and a host of other supporting characters. And it's this is the first movie in our James Dean Film Festival. We're going to be doing all three of his major motion pictures, talking about him and his life and sort of his influences in film, given his short film career. And you're listening to Classic Movie Reviews, and you can find us on the internet at www.classicmoviereviews.net. And there's a page on there for subscriptions, and you can find us um, on different places to listen to our podcast. Uh, and we're also on Patreon. Just search for Classic Movie Reviews on Patreon. And I'm Matt Johnson, and I'm coming to you from gray and cloudy North Bend today. And uh, I'm Bob Johnson here in Los Angeles, welcoming everyone back to Classic Movie Reviews and a fine movie, East of Eden, written by uh, an excellent author, John Steinbeck, who uh, in his career wrote 27 novels won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1962, and uh, among other things, was uh, an enormous influence on about, I think, 15, 16 films that were made uh, based on his novels. Wow. It's quite a movie. It came out in April of 1955, so I would have been in the eighth grade, and I went to it that summer and uh, enjoyed it, although I didn't get all the... uh, the uh, intricacies of the script. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, depth to the movie (laughs) that an 8th grader probably wouldn't be picking up on. A lot going on, a lot going on. Wow. Uh, Nancy and I were visiting about James Dean yesterday, and what what a wonderful actor he uh, was. And uh, amazingly, if he'd lived, he could still be acting today. And I read where... After he did his last film, Giant, he was uh, being considered to do um, the uh, Someone Up There Likes Me film about a boxer, Rocky Graziano. He was very athletic, and uh, that part was uh, then done by Paul Newman. Well, and and I was reading that he had like a six-picture deal lined up. Um, Yes, that's right, yeah. Yeah, they had a whole list of movies that he was going to be in, and I think he was going to being cat on a hot tin roof as well that would have been interesting to see another one that paul newman was in he and paul newman were were kind of at the same period in time yeah his life was cut short in a car crash and i'd always thought that it was because he was speeding or maybe he was drunk or you know like something like that but they did a recreation of what had happened that night i was reading and he'd actually been only going about 55 to 65 miles an hour uh, but that road that he was on was really not well designed, and so I think it was that was contributing to it. And then he was also driving a, a, a brand new 1955 Porsche Spider, which was essentially a, a road legal race car. 
And <laughs> a lot of his friends had said, don't, you know, please don't drive this car. You're going to kill yourself. And no. unfortunately, that's what happened. Yeah, there's a special marker at the place where he was killed. I have not seen that, but um, he's, a, he's a force in this film, I tell you. Every time he's on the screen, it's like, wow, I can't take my eyes off his character. Yeah, the first time I saw him in the movie, I just thought he looked like he could have he could step onto the screen today wearing the exact same clothes and the same hair and be totally fitting in. Like he just looks so timeless the way he he shows up in this movie. He does. And it, it, I I'm kind of jumping around a little bit uh just to back up for a minute. The uh, film came out and it was very successful. And he had the other two films lined up with Warner Brothers. So he was set after uh, to do that this is the only film uh, that he was able to see in its completed form the other two were not done when he was killed right so, right that was interesting this is quite a uh, beautiful setting for this film uh, not only was it filmed in salinas and monterey bay but a lot of it was filmed up north of san francisco in mendocino and they selected that location because it had more of a rural small town feel which they wanted to create, uh, to recreate for Mon Monterey, Monterey Bay. The opening of this movie was interesting. They had an overture where it kind of just played music for about three or four minutes, and they had this view of the ocean. And then they give this kind of uh, monologue talking about Monterey and Salinas, and they called Monterey a rough-and-tumble fishing town. And I kind of laughed to myself because now Monterey is almost like a tourist town. They've got the aquarium there and tons of shopping. And it's hard for me to imagine as, as a rough-and-tumble uh, fishing village. I know. And then they uh, talk about Salinas as being kind of an isolated farm community, isolated from Monterey Bay by a uh, mountain range and I think 15 miles or so. But it's beautifully photographed. Ah, oh, I tell you, the, the opening. Oh, it's wonderful. I just like watching the cinematography. I, I, I just was fascinated by kind of the old town. Thinking about this was around nineteen seven, supposed to be around nineteen seventeen, and what it would be like to live in this little town that eventually turns into a big town. You know, and the old cars and the old train. And he's riding a train. He's catching. You know. He's, hopping on a train between Salinas and Monterey and riding on top of it. And I thought that was just, it's just a really well-depicted view of what life would have been like in 1917 there. And it gave him an opportunity to show his athleticism when he runs along and then hops onto that train while it's moving. He made it look so easy. He did, didn't he? Yeah. <laughs> very, very uh, much in shape. Well, the, uh, the director, Mr. Kazan, had a wonderful career, lived to be 94, and he won um, many awards, two that come to mind, and uh, one of them we've, we've reviewed. He was uh, the winner of the Academy Award for Gentleman's Agreement as dire director of Gentleman's Agreement in uh, 1948, and then he won again in On the Waterfront in 1955. He did about 20-plus films over a... Uh, career that lasted from 1937 to 1976. And he got all jumbled up in the House on american Activities Committee and the McCarthy era, um, which took for him a long time to straighten it out, straighten it out. Plus, uh, he did a movie that we should probably think about reviewing, 
Panic in the Streets from 1950, which takes place in New Orleans with Richard Widmark and Jack Palance. And Widmark is with the public health services and he's doing his best to prevent uh, the spread of a plague that was brought in on a ship. Oh, wow. Really well done. That sounds cool. Very dramatic black and white film, all on location. A lot of this movie was, like you said, filmed on location, uh, but all of the interiors were filmed on a soundstage. Yes. But, you know, they, they did such a great job of editing. You, you just think that it's all just filmed right there in the towns. One of the things that Mr. Kazan did was he, he used James Dean in the lead, and this was really his first big movie role. He'd done five other films, but he was un, in uncredited roles. And he'd done a lot of live television. He loved to do live television back in the early 50s. But his brother, this was his first appearance he had on the screen, Richard Davalos. Oh, he did good. He was really good in this movie. He was really good. What I, one of the things I really loved about this movie is that they start out and their roles are sort of like Aaron is the quote-unquote good son and happy-go-lucky and, and seems like everything is falling into place in his life. You know, he's, he's in love with uh, Julie Harris's character, Abra. And then James Dean's character, Cal is sort of like, quote-unquote, the bad son and just can't seem to get his life together. seems like he's always kind of getting into small trouble with different people and the sheriff. And But then by the end of the movie, it's sort of like they have a role reversal. Yeah, especially that scene where uh, Aaron is on the train. He's going to enlist in the Army and go off to World War One, and put his head through the, the glass. That... Oh, that that scene was heartbreaking. That actually looked like he did that with the glass. Man, it really like, did. It really did. I bet it was that fake like sugar glass. <laughs> uh, the thing I was struck by uh, in watching James Dean and his character, he all at the same time, he was an innocent young boy. He uh, he would act out things whenever he felt he wanted to like put in all that ice down the chute and at the same time he was he was a young man who wanted to do anything that he could to uh seek the approval and love of his father and he was on a mission and obsessed by the fact that he wanted to meet and know more about his mother i mean he was he was several different feelings and emotions all bundled into his wonderful performance it's a really beautiful performance of that age somebody at that age i'm assuming that he's like 17 18 maybe somewhere around that right because he's right at that yeah age i think he so could, yeah he could get drafted into the army i think I mean, the confusion that you feel and sometimes you feel like you're still you just want to be a little kid and it he portrays that so well it's just kind of with his body language and the way that he just gives you a look he's just an amazing like physical actor i know the the different facial expressions and body language uh jumping around a little bit when he when he has the field growing all the beans and he does that dance uh in the field to kind of help promote the growth of the beans that was totally improv hey Daddy. Ain't this some sight? Beans. Yeah, boy, some beans. 
You come here every day, boy. What do you think? You gonna make him grow quicker? Oh, that was awesome. What I loved about that scene was that just the joy that he had and felt, and not just because he was doing something great for his dad, but I actually think he, he was really feeling fulfilled, like he was doing something good by growing these beans. And and I thought to myself, you know, that's so neat, like the growing that crop and how important that was and just the way that he expressed those emotions really was joyous. I just can't imagine what a career he might have had had he been able to go on for decades. Jeez. He could have he could have done anything. He could have been a he could do a comedy, a number of things. Somebody had said that he they thought he would go on to be a director because he was tired of having people behind the camera always telling him what to do. <laughs> <laughs> So, but another scene uh, that I really wanted to talk about was the was the scene in the Ferris wheel. Yes, you you know at this point in the movie that that Abra is having some second thoughts about Aaron because they're together, and Aaron and Cal are twin brothers, not identical twin brothers, but twin brothers. And Cal, I think, is having some feelings for Abra as well, but he doesn't want to like hurt his brother's feelings, and they actually don't. Neither of them really want to hurt the brother. But but I felt like James Dean went through all of the emotions that you could possibly go through in that scene. I mean, he was nervous, he was falling in love, he was ashamed, he was embarrassed. He looked at points like he was about 12 years old, and then at points like he was about 40 years yes. old, all in that same scene. And yeah. I was just blown away by the his range and his performance i was just stunned it was just amazing there that's castorville everything looks so small higher, down there higher, higher, higher. what what are you talking about <laughs> i'll tell you sometime cal does aaron really love me i seem to have sort of lost him i mean well we're going to be married someday, but, well, if he does love me, he doesn't, I can't tell anymore. Cal, can I ask you something? Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> well, these girls that you always go around with, you know, remember those, that little Mexican girl once? What are girls like that like? I mean, you don't really love them, do you? Why do you go out with them? Is it because you're bad? You're not angry, are you? Well, why do you then? Are you bad, Cal? Do you think I'm bad? I don't know. Because <laughs> I guess I don't know what is good and what's bad. I mean, well, Aaron is so good. And, and I'm not. Not good enough for Aaron, anyway. I mean, because sometimes when I'm with Aaron, Aaron likes to talk about her being in love and think about it. <laughs> That's all right, but these girls that you go out with, do they... well, maybe I don't know what love is exactly. I know love is good the way, the way Aaron says, but well, it's, it's more than that. It's got to be. Oh, I 
shouldn't talk to you this way, Carol. I shouldn't. But I don't know who else to talk to. And, and sometimes I think I'm really bad. And sometimes I don't know what to think. Well, Aaron will knock that out of you. Will he? He's got to. Well, the way I figure it out, Aaron never having had a mother, well, he's made her everything good that he can think of. And, and that's what he thinks I am. And that's what he's in love with. It's not me at all. Because I'm not a bit like that made up one. Not a bit. I don't mean I think I'm really bad. Look at that star. Must be a planet. It's so bright. Probably. That girl's waiting for you down there somewhere. Well, she can just wait. She was pretty. You've been awfully nice, Cal, taking care of me. Well, he was in three major films, and I believe he was nominated as a Best Actor in all three. I think I believe that's correct. Yeah, the other thing I definitely wanted to touch on was this idea of going off to war and what that did to the community. Yes, wasn't that something that the parade and the yeah all of that and the subplot to that, yeah. of the German uh, shopkeeper that lives in town and how he starts off the movie and everybody's very friendly with him and. He's a real integral part of the community. And then as the war ramps up and things aren't going well, they all turn on him. And he's standing up saying, these are all lies. You know, there's that scene where they're kind of, the army officers kind of whipping the crowd up into a frenzy about all these things that the Germans have done. And he's standing there saying, lies, lies. These Huns have been the aggressors in every war in Europe since the time of Julius Caesar. In mixed company, I couldn't attempt to describe to you the horrors committed by the Germans. All Look, I can say is that in one we have time? Time, after the Germans have been through, the women the Germans here again. It is not true. It is lies, all lies. Because he, he knows it's propaganda. I thought that was so relevant to even today. Like what can happen when things get kind of whipped up into a frenzy like that? It's a it's a it's a real true part of that World War One time. I've read about the uh, the feelings of uh, anti-German feelings in in the population, and I kept thinking as I watched that of the movie about. Uh, Manzanar, farewell, farewell to Manzanar, and the uh, internment of all the Japanese citizens in World War II. I, I mean, it, it's it just it was a parallel, and made me want to re- remind us to uh, take a look at Farewell to Manzanar, uh, another wonderful movie. There's a scene where two of the older like townsfolk during the parade they're saying, "Kaiser, all we have to do is call us bluff. You come to here like a dog." over there and clean up this mess for those foreigners in a couple of weeks. 
a few scenes later, those same two people are bemoaning how terrible it is and how long they've been there, and there's no end in sight. Marty Hopps got a telegram today. His boy was killed. I remember the day we sent him off. A lot of troop ships have been sunk. They don't even tell us about. It's going to be a long war. Those Germans got an army. They're a military nation. Go back where you came from, German! Go on home, German! And again, like, that's such a great little encapsulation of sort of this nationalist view of, like, going off to war and, and what it's going to be like versus what it really is like. There were a lot of scenes that that provided capsules of, of different parts of life at that time, just in no particular order. The scenes from the lettuce farming and the uh, harvesting of that and how Cal had come up with a coal shoe, stolen a coal shoe, so that <laughs> it could be more efficient. Shoe, yeah. And then uh, he was so proud of himself. <laughs> and then the scene inside the brothel, the bar, and the gambling. That scene and that enforcer guy that uh, made a career out of being that kind of guy in a, a lot of movies. Oh my gosh! Uh, yeah. And and the uh, the county fair uh, recreation of that and the Ferris wheel. I mean, there were a lot of these, just. Many uh, scenes the car, within the, the car, like starting up the yeah, car the, uh, and that little yeah. that little mantra that they had to say to remember the order. Like, now, do you know the principle of the internal combustion engine? No, I'm afraid not. Uh, will I'll never be able to. Oh, sure you will. You just listen to Roy. He's been to the automobile school in Chicago. Mr. Trask has just revolutionized the entire vegetable market. Well, I better wait till those cars get oh, New don't York. Don't you worry about that. It's about time he owned his own automobile. And it's about time he learned to drive it himself. Now, don't you think so, Roy? I'll do my best. Well, uh, now pay strict attention, boys. <laughs> don't touch that! Wait till it's explained to oh, you. Oh, no, now for him's sake, don't touch anything, anybody. Now, the power of the explosion is exerted on a piston and through connecting rod and crankshaft, through transmission, thence to rear wheels. Got that so far? Sure, he's got that. Now, we'll go on to the operation of the automobile. This here's the ignition key. You mind putting out that cigarette, please? Turn this doohickey here to the left. That puts her on battery. See where it says bat? Oh, yes, yes. Bat, short for battery. That's right. Good boy. Thank you. Thank you very much. First, you got to retard the spark. Because if you don't retard the spark, she'll probably kick your blasted arm off. Oh, now remember that. Now, this here is a spark. You push her way up. Listen. This here's the gas. You push her down. You had lessons before. No, no, I just saw you do it. Uh, oh, you're a pretty smart old buzzard. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Your eyes open, don't you? Try to. Now, this here's the crank. See this little wire sticking out of the radiator? Well, that's a choke. Now, watch careful. Grab hold of the crank like this. Push in, and she catches. See how my thumb is turned down? Yes, I noticed that. Now, why do you do that? Well, if you put her around this way with my thumb around her, She'd probably knock my blasted thumb off. Oh, dear, dear. First you lose your blasted arm, then you lose your blasted thumb. That's kind of the wrong way around. How's that? She made a joke. <laughs> I never did see him so happy. You pull out this choke, turn her around to suck gas in. Then you give her a hard spin. She caught. First time. Oh, oh come on, what? Device the spark, retard the gas. Reach over real quick and switch over to mag. That's magneto. So... Hey, uh, dear, dear. Now, isn't that wonderful? Well, of course, it isn't exactly going anywhere, is it? That's the easy part. Now, uh, what you want to repeat after me? 
Spark up, gas down. Spark up, gas down. Switch to bat. Switch to bat. Crank new pressure. Thumb down. Crank in the compression. Thumb down. You got that? Uh-huh. Let's have it again. Spark up, gas That's right. That's a real process. Now we just push a button. <laughs> all I can think of is I'm breaking my wrist. Yeah. Say all these little scenes within the movie were amazing. Oh no, the dad said something funny like, "Well, first of all, I'm going to lose my arm, and then I'm going to lose my thumb." It seems like the order that's a little bit wrong. And the, his two <laughs> his two sons said, "Did he just tell a joke?" Yeah, the dad was a really interesting character. I oh I, another yeah. thought that I had was that it it's really a movie about being placed into a role by society and by tradition and by your parents and by your religion and having people and and society expect you to behave a certain way and that it and then if you don't want to behave that way or if that's not how you want to act then it it's just so much harder for you like the wife she didn't want to be out on the ranch she didn't want to have the dad reading the bible to her every day she wanted to be out living life and being a, a successful businesswoman. What are you staring at? How come you did it? Did what? Shot my father. Did he tell you that? <laughs> How come you ran away from all of us? How come you shot him, ran away? and your business? I shot him because he tried to stop me. I could have killed him if I'd wanted to, but I didn't. I just wanted him to let me go. Why? Because, because he tried to hold me. He wanted to tie me down. He wanted to keep me on a stinking little ranch away from everybody, keep me all to himself. Well, nobody holds me. But he loved you. Love. He wanted to own me. He wanted to... Bring me up like a, like a snot-nosed kid and tell me what to do. Well, nobody tells me what to do. Always so right himself, knowing everything. Reading the Bible at me. What are you grinning at? Nothing. Maybe you know what I'm talking about, huh? <laughs> Always so right himself? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> maybe like you said out there, maybe you are more like me. Huh? Yeah, you got sense. Maybe you don't fall for that slop any more than I do. Maybe you know what people are really like, what they want. I got the toughest house on the coast. And the finest clientele. Yeah, half the stinking city hall go there. They sneak in at night, and I walk in this front door in the daytime, see? And I build it up from nothing. Now you want $5,000 of my money to go into business to pay your father back what he lost. You know, that's funny. Oh, well, uh, I don't think he'll know where I got it. No, but it's, it's funny just the same. Your father. He's the purest man there is, isn't he? Oh. He thought he had me all tied up with his purity. Now I give you $5,000 of the money that I made to save him his purity. <laughs> if you don't think that's funny, you better not go to college. And so the same with the son. I think he just, he didn't quite fit into that mold that the dad wanted him to fit into. And he desperately wanted his dad's affection. Oh, it, it, at any cost, really. 
at any cost. And and Raymond Massey as as the father uh, was that Adam yeah Adam Trask did a did a wonderful job. He he's an actor that was around for many decades and had so many good roles. One that comes to mind that he played in is the movie Fountainhead from the late forties. Oh, I've heard about that. Which yeah, I is watch uh, that. which is another one that we should watch. I know there's uh, so many. Oh my goodness. One of the comments I, I read about him was that uh, one particular writer thought he was sort of one-dimensional in the role. I didn't find that to be true at all. I thought he was true to the character, uh, both the strong moral, ethical values and also a very strong commitment to his religion. That, that's that's it, what I the character I was. Him, I didn't find anybody in the movie to be one-dimensional. I just thought they all were fleshed out with like little touches here and there that gave you more depth in, about their character and made you think about kind of the life that they had lived like like for instance Abra has this speech that she gives when they're out in the field and she's bringing lunch to oh Aaron. yeah yeah and she talks about her growing up and how her mom had died and how her dad was so cold with her cal says why are you telling me all this and she says because i want to you're really working at this lettuce business aren't you cal you think it'll turn out all right? Your father will lose quite a lot of money if it doesn't, won't he? Just about all he's got. I like your father. Do you? I threw away about $3,000 once. Huh? You when I was 13. You threw it away? It was a diamond ring worth about that. At least my father told me that's what he paid for it. I threw it in the river. Made Dad terribly angry. <laughs> I reckon it would. But I forgave him. And it's been you all right ever since. You forgave him? Yes. <laughs> you forgave him because you threw a ring of his worth $3,000 into the river. That's right. And you forgave him? That's right. <laughs> an egg in this basket. You see, I thought he didn't love me. That made me feel awful. Girls love their fathers terribly. Do they? My mother died when I was 13, and Dad got married again soon after that. Did you know that? No, I didn't know that. Are you interested in hearing about me? Yeah. When Dad got married again, it made me sick. I just hated everybody. I used to sit and just glare at people, and I, I wouldn't even answer when they spoke to me. Why are you telling me all this? I want to. I was that way for months. I just hated everybody, and I thought nobody in the world loved me. It was awful. And then I found this ring that Dad gave my new mother. So I took it and threw it in the river. Good. <laughs> I thought you'd like that. <laughs> Did you ever find it? Never. <laughs> <laughs> they tried. <laughs> well, what'd they do to you? Oh, Dad punished me. Not badly, I guess. But I felt he shouldn't have punished me at all. I felt he should have loved me more because I did it. But he didn't. Isn't it funny? I'm grown up now, but I... I still understand kids better than I do grown-ups. You're not so grown-up. I'm very grown-up. That's a matter of opinion. I'm very grown-up. 
more so than Dad, because, because I forgave him for not understanding. And the minute I forgave him, in my mind, I felt better. Now we get along fine. We love each other. Not like we did when I was 13, but enough so we can live together till I get married. He's just my father now. Nothing to rave about. I still don't like her much. Then she's a woman. Because she just needed somebody to tell this story to. And it was just, it, again, it was like another heartbreaking story, but just so real and true to life. Like, that was just something that definitely happens. Julie Harris, she was in many, many films. You'll remember her from our uh, podcast covering The Haunting from 1963. She was marvelous yep, in yeah. that, yes. She had a long, long career. I believe she was up for three Academy Awards, and I can see why. The only character that didn't fit quite right for me was at the very end of the film, that nurse that was taking care of Adam. She just seemed a little, I don't know, she just she was the one kind of scratchy part of the, <laughs> the character in the characters in the film. Yeah, maybe she was a little one-dimensional, but but at the same time, I it, it made me really think about healthcare at that time, and sort of like what the professional uh, ethics were and how people were expected to act, and you know she was a private nurse, and so clearly this family had enough money to hire her because it wasn't something that would have been provided by the state or anything like that, and she was just obviously just doing it for the money. Like she didn't, she wasn't there because she was on some kind of mission, you know, like she wasn't doing it because it was her calling necessarily. And so it did, it did make me think about that. Although, yeah, I did find her to be grating. And I think it was, she was supposed to be, I think that was intended. I, I do too. I think it also added to the, uh, to the ability of uh, uh, both Cal and, and Adam to dismiss her. Yeah because she was just not fitting yeah. in. I, th I think it's amazing that we've, we've gone this far in our uh, review of the film and not made one reference to the Cain and Abel characters from the Bible that could be, could be seen in Cal and, and Aaron. Well, and there's even an explicit reference to that in the movie. It's like the movie is a little bit self-referential in that way. Cain rose up against his brother Abel and slew him. And Cain went away dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. Now, why don't you go away someplace? Uh, which is kind of cool. Yeah, because they, they, they read from the Bible that part of Cain and Abel's story. I, I, I was aware of that, but it just, it didn't really matter to me in terms of, it, you know, it's just a great story about a family and a time in, in the country and wanting to fit in, wanting to be loved not knowing how to love, not knowing how to fit in. Um, just, it was just a beautiful film. I, I just, I can't believe I haven't seen it before. This is my first time watching it. I, I didn't think of uh, the uh, the biblical reference either, other than just kind of in the back of my mind, because I, I knew that was a part of the review or of people. But, but uh, to me, it's exactly what you say. And one of my favorite characters was the sheriff, Burl Ives, as Sam. 
Oh yes, we got to talk about him. He he yeah. was a he was very very open and and uh, good with people. Didn't matter who they were. When they had that big fight scene over the after the first one, exactly. he walks through there and he's, he says hi, Sam. <laughs> it just gives him a look, and everybody's like so ashamed, like oh yeah, we we know that we shouldn't be. It doing remind this. me a little bit of Atticus Finch in uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. That character. He, oh, he, yeah. he, he, mm-hmm. he carried himself so well he could interrelate to anybody. And when he offered to bring Cal home in that car that looked like it was a, a new car for 1917, <laughs> that, he didn't have to do it. He said, I don't have to do that. I, I want to do that. And he had some many, many good things to say about people. He was truly not a stereotypical uh, sheriff that might have been, that, that could have been turned into that role. Yeah, I think that's a really good point about the movie in general and the script and the directing is that it it didn't veer off into a place where they just were doing sort of the easy stereotyped characters. Like it, like you said, it would have been really easy to just make him into a cardboard cutout of a, of a sheriff yeah. uh, from 1917. But he was a real human being and had real emotions and he really cared and was compassionate. And it was sort of like what you would hope he he would be like the other the other character that I thought was portrayed in a realistic manner was uh, Will Hamilton played by Albert Decker. He was the business person. He was fully developed as a character, I thought. And again, it again he could have been he could have been so stereotyped. He could have been like the crooked guy smoking a cigar and trying to get the worst, you know, trying to get the best of everybody and being sort of the worst person, but. He wasn't. I think he genuinely wanted to help Cal. And he saw this opportunity and he says, well, let's yeah. do this together. And Cal's like, yes, let's do it. I want to do this. And and they did. And then when Cal wanted to get out, he's like, fine, that's fine. I'll buy your shares out and I'll go on to make a fortune. And Cal's like, sounds yeah. fair to me. <laughs> and then the one that was the heart-wrenching <laughs> one for me was Joe Van Fleet as, as uh, Cal's mother. Oh, yeah. Kate uh, Ames. Yeah. I, I, it was it was she was so wanting to move out of her current feeling and emotion to to be more involved with him but she just she had gone through so much trials and tr- so much in her life it was really difficult for her to to move away from that and that last scene where cal takes aaron to meet her oh that was really painful that was sad well the look that she gave again just just body language and that look with no words I think she was just so disappointed in Cal in a way, like yeah. why, you know, you didn't have to do this. I know what you're doing, you know, and it, it's just, that was heartbreaking. But I, I, I would contend that she, she was a really, really strong person. Like she went off and did what she wanted to do. And she has this great speech about how half the people and yeah. half the men in town come to visit her at night, but they sneak in the back door and she walks through the front door in the daylight. And I just thought that was an amazing thing for her to say. And I don't think that she wanted to change anything necessarily that she'd done or, or go back in time and, and like live a different life. I think she was living the life she wanted to live. I think she was just sad that she couldn't maybe have been a part of her son's lives. Yeah. But that just wasn't possible. We've talked about all these characters and all of them, in my mind, are fully fully formed and, and, and uh, very realistic and believable. All Even the guy that was the enforcer for, for her in the brothel, 
Joe, played by Timothy Carey, was believable. He he could you know in in a, in another movie he could have gone out there and and beaten Cal up and you know all that kind of thing and he really didn't. He talked to him and 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 re- tried to reason with him to basically go away. And he wanted to know like why do you why do you want to you know and he asked him why what do you want to talk to her about what why are you here and again. There was no point during the movie where I was like groaning about, yeah. oh, here we go. Like, we're just going to go off into like the easy route of, of this, how to make this movie. And, and they didn't. They just kept pushing and pushing with these characters and developing them. And, and it, it was just, oh, gosh. I'm, I, again, I'm like, I just want to go watch it right now and, and experience it all over again. And I'll see things that I didn't see the first time, probably. Uh, it was clear for me and easy to come up with a rating for the film. It's a ten. It's a it's an award winning film. Definitely uh, from a, an award winning book by an award winning author <laughs> and an award winning everybody's award winning, <laughs> I guess. But anyway, it, it, yeah, it's clearly just there's really not a false note in the in the film. You know, it, it's it's a beautiful film and a visually beautiful film. The music was beautiful. The story, the little touches of life in 1917, the stories around going to war and what that did to the family and the being forced to, to fit into a certain role but not wanting to and what that can do. It's just oh, it's just a beautiful film. Absolutely a 10. You know, the, the thing that just popped into my mind, and it's such a small piece of the film in terms of time, takes probably a few seconds. It's during the parade... And there's all all this fervor of getting into the war and the anti-German feeling. And here's Cal with his he's walking along the parade route with his arm around a small African American boy. Oh yeah, yep, I remember that. There's no there's no dialogue. There's nothing. It's just a visual that it was a counterpoint to the the anti-German uh, behavior and the big parade and all. I, I, those touches are everywhere in this film. Even the even the three guys that were on the coal truck that had their shoot stolen were believable. Yeah, they, <laughs> they were. It's just like totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah I know. For the period of time, it was an amazing, amazing film. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so it's set in 1917, and there's all these things that are happening that happened in 1917. But the audience that's watching it and the people that are making it are of that time of 1954, you know, 55. And I think that there's things in the movie that are messages about 1955 as well. And I think that you pointed out one, but I also think we just, you know, not to 10 years earlier, come out of World War II, Korea War was, you know. That was, it, it, uh, it went to an armistice two years earlier than 55, so. Yeah, so the Korean War had just ended, or just recently ended. And there's all these other kind of conflicts brewing. And then we've got the House on American Affairs thing happening. So, yeah, it's it's fascinating to think about that in the context of the times as well. And in keeping with the films that we've seen recently, I thought Joe Van Fleet's character, Kate Ames, was very strong. We've had... We've had we have had yeah. an incredible run of, of strong female characters. It's It's been amazing. And I think... That will continue with, I haven't seen Giant, but I've seen Rebel Without a Cause, and that's got a great, strong female character. And, and oh, I just can't wait to talk about that movie because there's some some really neat things around 
like accepting and equality and diversity and you know all that yeah it's a it's a thing that opened my eyes to that the, the growth of the role of women uh, and through these films mm-hmm. is one way one one way to see that happen so yeah 10 for us huh not bad and so yeah that was our review of east of eden and i definitely want to give a shout out to our first patreon subscriber and i just want to say thank you so much to paul petro i hope i pronounced your name correctly yeah we're on patreon and you can join patreon to support what we're doing with the podcast you can get access to uh, this show for instance a week early uh, than the regular uh, feed. And and at Tier 2, you can get a bonus show. So that would be three shows a month. And then at Tier 4, uh, there's another show. So there's four shows a month that we're going to be uh, producing. And so we have some really fun things planned uh, specifically for patrons on Patreon. I'd like to echo Matt's uh, thank you to Paul. We really appreciate it. Thanks again. Yeah, that definitely definitely made my day yesterday, Paul. So thank you so much. And we look forward to many, many more years of podcasting and, and, and just talking about movies. We love doing that. So coming to you from North Bend today, this is Matt Johnson. And Bob Johnson in Los Angeles wishing everybody happy movie watching. Take care of me. Oh. oh.